When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Did the civil rights movement owe its existence to free speech? Or is free speech the result of social movements? Today, I will speak with Fred Schauer, the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. Previously, Professor Schauer taught at Harvard University, where he was the Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment. He's the author of many books, including The Law of Obscenity, Free Speech, A Philosophical Inquiry, and, most recently, The Force of Law. Welcome. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Fred Schauer today, who is the David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor at the University of Virginia Law School. You were Professor of the First Amendment for many years before that at another distinguished institution at Harvard University. And I'm really happy you're taking the time to talk to me since you're based in Charlottesville, and you've written extensively about the First Amendment, both jurisprudence and the philosophical and political reasons why we in the United States approach free speech in the particular way in which we do. So I would just love to hear a little bit, since you've been thinking about the First Amendment and free speech, two separate but distinctly related things for such a long time, to maybe start out by thinking, why do you think the speech issues have become such a volatile thing on campuses in the last two or three years. This is a phenomenon we're living through right now. It had been the same in the maybe late 80s, early 90s, but it's really come back, and in Charlottesville, of course, with these terrible consequences of last August 11th and 12th. I think, as you suggest, the issue or the concern goes back earlier. If we go back to the 1950s and 1960s, it was widely believed that speech was essentially harmless and anybody who wanted to restrict speech was a dangerous authoritarian uh, or something of that variety. The first move away from that probably occurred in the early 1970s with the feminist anti-pornography movement, Catherine McKinnon most prominently, and then others began to focus our attention on the fact that speech was not a harmless act, that the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me, was false, despite what our mothers may have told us when we came home crying from the playground when we were eight years old. Then from that, 
there developed similar concerns about speech that had the same effect on racial matters that McKinnon and others had argued about gender. And there was also, at about the same time, uh, in constitutional law generally or political philosophy generally, a recognition that not every country in the world did things the way the United States did. So starting in the 1980s and 1990s, an increased attention on comparative constitutional law focused a little bit on comparative free speech law and the recognition that the U.S. was exceptional and not necessarily in the good sense of exceptional, that the U.S. was an international outlier on questions of free speech. And as a result, uh, or another way of putting this is that a large number of restrictions on racist speech, a large number of restrictions on libel, invasion of privacy, and the like were accepted in a number of developed open liberal democracies, uh, most prominently in Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, among others. So it's not just the question of we have more free speech than North Korea or Saudi Arabia. Rather, the question was, why does the United States treat free speech as a virtual absolute value compared to the attitude in a number of open industrialized liberal democracies? Against that background, then we had some number of events such as the ones in Charlottesville, although Charlottesville was hardly unique other than the tragedy of a death that ensued. That is, there were similar events at the University of Florida in Gainesville. There were similar events at the University of California in Berkeley. There were the widely publicized events at Middlebury College in Vermont when Charles Murray came to speak. So all of these things seem to coalesce at about the same time, but probably the most important factor was the slow recognition that free speech should not be used as an argument stopper, that it should not be used to just say that any restriction on unlimited speech is necessarily a bad thing, or to put it somewhat differently, a recognition that there ought to be as much free speech about free speech as free speech encourages us to have about everything else. Interesting. Interesting that you point this out, that ironically, when people bring up free speech, they actually, I think, tend to, with all good intentions, bring up the First Amendment as an absolute doctrine and say it has settled all the questions we just raised. And you're saying, actually, this is where we should probably begin thinking about what you just said, the exceptionalism of the American approach, and then of the, the reasons behind it, the reasons why we've approached it in certain ways, both methodologically and differently from other democracies and other countries. Although the great fear is, as you said, when we hand the authority to decide what speech does in certain contexts or the authority to regulate speech to figures of authority, there's a great American suspicion to hand this over to the government or to figures of authority. And this seems to be, you've written about this quite a bit, this, there may be less of this suspicion, strangely, in other democracies that Canadians don't have such a great anxiety to hand over the authority to a 
president of a university or this or the cabinet or judge to say, this is hate speech, not in a minor way of making me feel bad, but this is actually destructive to the fabric of our social and collective well-being. I think that's right. Another way of putting what you just said is that to some extent, the fear of authorities making determinations about speech is a little bit culturally and nationally specific to the U.S. There is a stronger libertarian tradition in the U.S. than in most other, maybe all other industrialized liberal democracies. That has a complicated history. Maybe some of this is a and here we need the sociologists and not the philosophers and not the lawyers. Maybe some of it is a function of the 19th century expansion of the U.S., uh, which itself in lots of different ways embedded a certain kind of libertarian tradition. Maybe in terms of free speech, it is a reaction against the overreactions of 1919, the Red Scare, and then the overreactions or reaction against the overreactions of 1949 to 1953, the McCarthy era. So we have in the U.S. partly the, the history of the U.S.'s founding, partly the history of the U.S.'s expansion, partly the history of the U.S.'s quite strong anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-everything tradition. You can't proudly claim, or it's hard to proudly claim, to be a socialist or a social democrat in the U.S., the way it's certainly viable or well, maybe even necessary in parts of the Western Europe. So all of this has made Americans more fearful for good or for ill, for, more fearful of someone deciding what can be said and what's not, but that view ignores the extent to which, and here we go back to John Stuart Mill, not John Stuart Mill about government censorship, but John Stuart Mill about social pressure. Mm -hmm. Mill, right. in an often ignored part of On Liberty, said the danger to speech, the danger to liberty of thought and discussion, as he characterized it, from social pressure and social intolerance is every bit as great, if not greater, than government restriction. And that's interesting. And he says that without even yet thinking of the heckless veto or people shutting down something. He's saying something like, if you put something out and the Twitter mob is organized enough and really pressures and silences you or shames you publicly, that is a greater threat to free speech the way he understands it, then a government official, a feckless government official who may or may not get it right and prohibit something. So this danger of the social space actually regulating itself in the wrong way. It's interesting. It's not really what people bring up that much. They, they bring in the First Amendment. In your writing, you said it's kind of a First Amendment opportunism. People bring the First Amendment in when they don't really know how else to think about this. They say, here it is, solved our problem. Right. So here... I'm going to engage in a bit of double hearsay. I have, I've heard it said that Herbert Marcuse, the author of Repressive Tolerance, yes. when asked the same question, who decides, yes. responded by saying perceptively, who decides now? Very the idea being that even without government decision-making, there is 
decision-making by social norms, not even, as you suggest, uh, only public shaming. I suspect that when Mill wrote about this in 1859, he was not thinking about public shaming. He was thinking about social disapproval and social ostracism and eyebrows being raised in the drawing rooms of upper middle class and upper class London in the middle of the 19th century. But it's the same phenomenon. The worry about social acceptance, the worry about social disapproval may be a greater censoring mechanism and censuring mechanism than we often think it is. It's interesting you bring up Marcuse, who sort of leads us into the, let's say, 60s and then 70s. In the 60s, before McKinnon introduces this idea that speech can affect our social belonging in terms of the effect equality. You have the 60s, which a lot of people writing on the First Amendment invoke and say this is a great moment because this is the population protesting against its own government. And there we see the best evidence how the First Amendment functions well to keep the government essentially in check. But Marcuse is saying something else in the text you just mentioned. In the other text, he's saying also... There are ways in which power is distributed. So who decides now is an answer saying it's who has certain types of power right now. And the work that comes out of the 60s, from McKinnon to Mary Matsuda, Richard Delgado, all these people is saying the First Amendment tends to favor those in power occasionally. That by assuming a neutrality principle, it actually maintains the status quo. And I'm interested in kind of getting this history right between the 60s where we would all think it was good that people get to de- got to demonstrate against the Vietnam War. And then you have the 70s where people are saying, well, all this, this neutrality doctrine allows people in power to keep on basically saying things that keep people who are less empowered in their places. Yeah. So we talked a few minutes ago about American exceptionalism, about free speech. Almost all of American exceptionalism about free speech arose during a roughly 15-year period, or maybe even fewer years than that, starting with the early 1960s, the civil rights demonstrations, New York Times versus Sullivan, freeing libelous statements from restriction, and going through the mid-1970s, where the inclusion of commercial advertising within free speech was an important milestone. So from 1964 to 1976, most of which sets the American approach apart, emerged a number of Supreme Court decisions. Mm -hmm. That period largely was marked by, as you suggest, protests against the Vietnam War, but also starting in the early 1960s, civil rights protests and civil rights demonstrations. Although Brown versus the Board of Education was decided in 1954, the era of civil rights marches, parades, demonstrations, protests, picketing and the like was largely an early 1960s phenomenon continuing throughout the 1960s. Can I ask you one thing about the civil rights movement? I'm really interested. So there's Henry Calvin's book, this book he writes in 65, says the Negro and the First Amendment. And he says, strangely, the black civil rights movement does not use a free speech doctrine to advance its agenda. It fights for equality, and he says they're not very concerned with their own free speech rights. They don't bring cases. The New York Times will 
be in a case. But he says the civil rights movement does not actually use their speech rights to advance what they want. They keep on insisting it's an equality issue, and the Civil Rights Act is really—it's an equality act. So I'm interested whether I'm getting this history right, because the history I've read is Calvin and people like that who said, no, actually explicitly Dr. King is not suing on speech grounds. He's not bringing action. He's equality. But now there's a – I've read a lot of people and talked to people who've said, oh, no, civil rights movement owes everything to the First Amendment. But I think even if it owes a great deal to the First Amendment, I wouldn't say everything, even if it owes a great deal to the First Amendment, it's possible that that account gets the causation backwards. Mm -hmm. Prior to 1963, 1964, and so on, American free speech doctrine was more restrictive than we now think it is. And if you were Thurgood Marshall, before he was on the Supreme Court, the chief litigator for the NAACP and NAACP Legal Defense Fund, a very good lawyer like Marshall would have said, if we litigate on free speech grounds, we are likely to lose. If we litigate on equality grounds, we know from 1954 that the Supreme Court is on our side. And unanimous decision, right. And unanimous decision. And a large number of subsequent decisions reinforcing the idea, it looked like both in terms of the attitudes of Supreme Court members and existing doctrine, it was a much better legal strategy to litigate on equality grounds. What then happens is the Supreme Court, which itself was committed to the idea of equality, may have changed free speech doctrine because of its commitment to equality. That is, at least an interpretation of New York Times versus Sullivan, is that the Supreme Court was principally concerned with the use by the Alabama courts and the use by the Alabama officialdom of libel law to do something about the New York Times and more specifically, what were perceived as northern outside agitators. Mm-hmm. We called the case New York Times versus Sullivan, but let's not forget that it was an advertisement in the New York Times, and that the advertisement was signed by Rev. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Martin Luther King, and yeah. some number of others. All of this suggests that it may be slightly hyperbolic to talk about New York Times versus Sullivan as an accident. But the Supreme Court's concern with the case may have been driven at least substantially by its concerns about equality. So, too, with subsequent cases in the 1960s, for example, to give another case with a famous litigant, Gregory versus the city of Chicago. That's Dick Gregory, civil rights activist and comedian whose marches were restricted. The Supreme Court upheld the right to march in Gregory and some number of other 60s cases. So it may be that Mm. equality was the driver uh, to changes in First Amendment doctrine, but the changes having occurred, then the First Amendment doctrine could be drivers of other things. And by the time we get to 1969 and 1970, and the Supreme Court is protecting the Ku Klux Klan, that may have been a consequence of an earlier concern about equality. I think this is really fascinating, and it really is helping me tremendously. 
the Boanes case in the early 50s, which was a group yeah. libel case, sort of the infamous, quote-unquote, the encroaching Negroes case about a sort of a restricting, I guess, demographic movement. Can you say something about that and the legacy of that case, which doesn't really get picked up again? And whether, as a professor of law, you ever mention it or not, because when you bring it in, I'm not a law professor, clearly, and you bring it up, people roll their eyes and say, oh, don't bring up that case. It doesn't have any legacy. It's not really that important for us. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's important because of its rejection. One, a contemporary constitutional scholar and friend of mine, Jamal Green from the Columbia Law School, has used the term anti-canon. That is, cases that are in such disrepute that it is socially unacceptable to cite them or rely on, even if they have never been officially overruled. That has been the view about Bowernay from 1969 on. That is 1969, when the Supreme Court decided Brandenburg versus Ohio, protecting a speech by a Clarence Brandenburg, local leader of the Ku Klux Klan. When you combine Brandenburg with New York Times versus Sullivan, which said that libel is protected by the First Amendment or is encompassed by the First Amendment, by the time you reached the early 1970s, Bowernay had been effectively overruled. Interestingly, jump ahead eight years, the Illinois Supreme Court and the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in 1977 and 1978 protect the march of the American Nazi Party or the Nationalist Socialist Party of America in Skokie, Illinois. The Supreme Court never heard the case on the merits. And the reason the Supreme Court, as you know, can decide what it wants to hear and what it doesn't want to hear, it obviously knew about the Skokie controversy. It decided, in effect, there's no need to hear these cases because the law is now settled. The Nazis have a right to march. The Illinois Supreme Court and the Seventh Circuit are right. In a dissenting opinion in one of the Supreme Court's refusal to hear the cases, Justice Blackman said, we ought to hear this case because Beauharnais has never been officially overruled. But the fact that he had to say this sort of reinforces the idea that it had been unofficially overruled by then. And we arrive now in 2018, and the notion that group libel, libel against the group can be punished consistent with the First Amendment has now been thoroughly rejected. Right, right. And then we go from Skokie from 77, where the court says this is settled, we don't need to hear it. In Skokie, there's an interesting moment when then-President Jimmy Carter is asked about Skokie, obviously very uncomfortable, doesn't want to comment, but they stick a microphone in his face, and he says, (laughs) these are abhorrent views, anti-American, they're everything we despise and would not tolerate at all, but I leave it to the courts to decide. So he makes a very strong statement of kind of moral condemnation in his position of political and moral leadership, but he says, it's separate from me to decide what legally is permissible, and that is Skokie, which kind of is, as we know, a complicated case. The ACLU cites it very frequently as a great triumph of free speech in America. And then I think what you brought up much earlier, kind of generational shift, what our mothers and fathers taught us, that words are not so bad, you know, they can't really do anything. Then you go to 2017, where 
a lot of younger people, students, are saying, so what was the great wisdom of deciding Skokie in this case if what's happening today in 2017 is bringing these people out again? There is an interesting denouement of the Skokie case. The Nazis won, but they did not march. Yes, and it's important to remember that they did not march. Not in Skokie, uh, right. Yes. It's important in 2017 to remember that they did not march mm -hmm. because we don't have a historical precedent. Put aside the law. We don't have a historical precedent about what happens when an audience reacts not only with hostility, but violently to hateful speakers. That's the issue that's now on the front burner, and we don't really know the answer to that from the Skokie cases themselves because the Nazis never marched. So it turns out that in Boston, in Berkeley, in Charlottesville, in Gainesville, and some number of other places, there have been seriously violent reactions to neo-Nazi Ku Klux Klan and related kinds of speakers at enormous cost. And the interesting question, call it the sociology of law enforcement in part, mm -hmm. is initially, why was it necessary to incur such a huge cost? There are lots of different theories about this. One theory would be the cost would be less if the counter-protesters, as they were called in Charlottesville, if the counter-protesters were punished more severely. I'm not sure I agree with that theory, but at least that's one account out there. Another account is that as long as we have very strong free speech protection for very hateful speakers. It's not at all surprising that people are going to be upset. It's not at all surprising that people who are going to be upset are going to react uh, frequently with violence. And therefore, it turns out that the costs of protecting against violence are enormous. If I can be flipped for a moment, there's no such thing as a free speech. Right. The free speech rights are hugely expensive here in straight-out dollar terms, and then the question is who pays for that. Let's go back to this. You're setting up this speech, this counter-speech. There's a strong belief that bad speech, hate speech, can be countered with more speech with the idea that it would lead to some better outcome, hopefully, and not that hate speech will win out. There's always this idea that hate speech will lead to more speech with the unstated assumption that this will actually wipe out this hate speech, which may or may not be true. And you say, as you said, in other democracies, there isn't this kind of firm belief. I sometimes say this to my students. In America, we think if we restrict speech, it'll lead us to fascism. In Europe and Canada, you think if you don't restrict speech, it'll lead us to fascism. So you have this kind of extreme outcome in all cases. But to go back to the violence, the, I think a lot of the protesters, and I've talked to some students at UVA, they felt... Well, the violence is on the other side. These people come with weapons, and they are readily coming. And the test of is it an imminent incitement to immediate violence that a reasonable, obser reasonable observer would think is that we know this. We have seen Klan marches. We have seen attacks on minority communities. He said we're not unaware in this country what it does to bring a few hundred or a few thousand armed thugs into a neighborhood. So they feel... We just responded to an actual 
threat, even if that's not legally permitted, we at least have to be here to protect our own community. Or, this is the complicated part, or to make a moral statement when it isn't given by the authorities. So when Jimmy Carter had said, I condemn this, but the courts will decide, the students are saying, who is condemning this here? All we hear is First Amendment, they're allowed to march. First Amendment, they're allowed to march. But we don't hear that someone disagrees with them. So there's the big question of the authority that the students may not feel that people are really protecting their interests. I'm not sure it's right to say that there were no words of condemnation from authorities at the University of Virginia. The president of the university, President Sullivan, said quite strongly, these are hateful, abhorrent people. The appropriate reaction to them is to stay away and to ignore them. Those words, unfortunately, were not followed, but the strong words of condemnation from her in a local setting paralleled those that you described President Carter as having said. I think, obviously, whether it be in any of the different places that I've mentioned or some number of others yet to come, law enforcement has learned from these events. One of the things that law enforcement has learned from these events is the necessity of keeping opposing groups physically apart from each other. And if law enforcement is effective in keeping opposing groups physically apart from each other, the likelihood of actual violence is reduced substantially. That doesn't eliminate all of the issues. There are still remaining issues, some of which touch on the Second Amendment and weapons and guns, although lots of people in Charlottesville were carrying guns, but a lot of the violence was not gun violence. So there is the whole gun issue, but there's also the issue of what is the appropriate reaction to even a non-physically violent, hateful speaker? Some number of the people that you talk to, I suspect, said that even if we were not being violent, it is appropriate to disrupt. One of the things that we've seen in lots of different places is counter-protesters with musical instruments amplified sound, banging on drums, and so on, all with the aim of preventing listeners from hearing what the speakers have to say. This is an interesting sociological issue. It may even at some point be a judicial issue. In a strong free speech regime, do citizens have an obligation not to interfere with the ability of speakers to speak. And here, by, by interfere, I don't mean physical violence, I don't mean physical interference, but when someone is saying, we're going to prevent people from reading what you have to write or hearing what you have to say, is that consistent in the broadest and deepest philosophical sense with the free speech regime. Right. And I think the students have been really thoughtful. They've actually thought about this, and they, they say a couple of things. So it's one person's right to speak versus another person's right to speak. If we take out sort of drowning somebody else in noise or, you know, this the heckler's veto can take a whole range of um, manifestations. You know, we, the two of us are engaged in a conversation, so we respect the rules. You know, I try not to interrupt you. You try not to interrupt me. What if I keep on interrupting you? And then someone says, I can't do that anymore. Is my free speech right now 
impinged upon and you get your free speech rights. So I think this turns ultimately on who is given greater gravity here, whose free speech right is more protected. And this is where the university, of course, plays a really complicated role because it's a place where distinctions are made. It's a place of prestige. So if we take out kind of disruption, it makes it impossible to hear. But sort of I'm somewhat not sure about this recommendation to stay away during an event such as this because it gives a lot of prominence, power, and today really the national press to an organization that a lot of people want to oppose and send a signal, this is not our town, this is not our university, this is not our America. So if all the students stay away and you have a couple thousand guys in polo shirts and khakis who profess some Nazi ideology, people will think, oh, University of Virginia, wow, that's a school where the Nazis go. <laughs> so it's a complicated thing for anybody to say, stay away that day, because that's actually what they want. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I have seen the exact figures. It might be that a couple of thousand is an exaggeration. Uh, but uh, at, at the university, they were not, clearly, yeah. yeah I don't know. If we, might be, we might be in the hundreds rather let's, let's than say the even thousands. If, but, even if it's 50 yeah. people with flags. No, I, I think that's right. There is an interesting and important question about when you don't resist, when you don't speak against, does it look as if you are approving? Does it look as if you are agreeing with? One of the things that universities have done with more or less success is at least say that interfering with a speaker while speaking, with the drowning out or the interruption or whatever, is a violation of a university's commitment to a certain kind of discourse. But obviously, universities are committed to a certain kind of discourse in ways that the public forum is not and shouldn't be. That I wish, even in the public forum, there were more law on the question of is it permissible for the government, the authorities, to allocate times to opposing groups, to allocate spaces to opposing groups? How can that allocation be done? And so on, rather than it being somewhat of a free-for-all. Clearly, some of the people you've been talking to are right in saying that there are free speech rights on both sides. The Initial hateful speakers have free speech rights. Those who would object to them have free speech rights. If everybody is talking at the same time, nobody's hearing anything. Some constitutionally permissible principles of allocation, time and space, are obviously necessary. The courts haven't worked out very much of that. And once again, that's expensive, and somebody's got to pay for right. all of this. Right. If I ask you... When you put into it then speech that is defined invariably you know, as injurious speech or hate speech or speech that compromises equality, let's say in the, from the McKinnon or critical race theory ideas or Jeremy Waldron's idea of hate speech. So if there's a speech that actually in the minds of some of these legal theorists creates an imbalance in the space, a profound imbalance. So if someone is hurling epithets or someone is just giving a speech insulting one group, but not just insulting, but saying they are inferior on every level, they don't deserve to be here, et cetera, et cetera, they shouldn't be this group in the university. Does this change anything, or would you think the, the law must uphold this kind of neutrality doctrine, even when we're entering a university where, as we know, these First Amendment ideas such as there are no such thing as 
bad ideas don't really apply. We in the university are the business of deciding all the time what's a good idea, what's a bad idea. So I think <laughs> there's a lot of confusion around that. I can't come teach in your law school or even give a lecture because I'm not qualified. But if I have a really kooky, super racist idea, you have to give me my free speech rights. Otherwise, you're compromising me on some viewpoint neutrality. <laughs> we might think of this in terms of a spectrum where at one end of the spectrum, we have the university seminar, and I say seminar intentionally, 18 people. There's no question that when students start to insult others with racial or religious or gender-based epithets, the person in the front of the room, the authority figure, can and should do something about it. Much of the debate on university campuses is really about the question, is a university campus more like a seminar or is it more like the public forum? And that's where I think there are some number of people with some plausibility who would say, maybe it's more like a seminar than we think it is. Yes, it may be that there are 45,000, that's a rough guess, students at the University of Michigan, and it may be that it occupies several square miles, but it is, after all, a university that is trying to teach and inculcate certain ideas about discourse, certain ideas about intellectual integrity, intellectual honesty, and there is some room for a university even a large one, to say, we're just a bigger seminar. If you're not comfortable with what we are trying to teach in this bigger seminar, go to the public forum, go to Central Park, go to something of that variety. But the university is trying to do things in terms of habits of thought, habits of intellectual integrity and the like. Now, the response to that would be once things get too big and once things get beyond the seminar, then it looks more like the so-called public forum. And let's not be romantic about the public forum. If you go to the classic historical public forum, Speaker's Corner, Hyde Park, London, what you discover is that the speakers are not in tune with the mainstream of society, to put it gently, right. and the listeners are tourists. This is a tourist attraction. Right. That's all it is. It's not where thoughts and facts are being considered. The public forum has gone elsewhere. And then the question, and we come back to what you were saying before, is what do we do about or what can be done about power imbalances in the public forum? There is the often misused metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, but in some sense, the idea of a marketplace of ideas is literally true. Like other markets, market power helps. It helps to be wealthier in the marketplace of ideas. It helps to be sociologically more powerful in the marketplace of ideas. It helps to have political power in the marketplace of ideas, to extend the metaphor perhaps beyond its breaking point in the marketplace of ideas, it helps to own the store. Exactly. Um, and to be located close to the entrance and all that, so access yeah. to the public. The public isn't actually a neutral space, and access to the public, dominating it, having a bigger microphone, owning a press, etc., so all those considerations, do you think they should inform the way we approach these things? Or should we 
revert to say, well, the best thing is to assume some neutrality and we can't decide who has more power and who has less power. And... I, th I think here the we becomes more important. That yeah. is, I think it is largely correct that when we are thinking about governments with a capital G imposing restrictions in public parks, public streets, public sidewalks, and things of that variety, then the, the fear of authoritative determination of political figures making those determinations to keep themselves in power is very real. But once we leave that, it's not entirely clear that universities, whether they be public or private, have to operate in the same way. It's not entirely clear that social norms or the sociology of speech ought to operate in the same way. One of the things we see with some frequency is that free speech or the First Amendment are used as argumentative trumps, even in domains far beyond government restriction on the context or the content of ideas. I wish we had much more discourse about where the law of the First Amendment is appropriate and where the language of the First Amendment might appropriately differ from the law of the First Amendment or the language of free speech or the language of discourse or the language of deliberation ought not reflexively just to follow free speech doctrine. And it's interesting you say that because you make this distinction. There's good reason to obviously to follow the law and adhere to the law. And there's very good reason to question and think about what this law is based on and where it is maybe not helpful. And I found it really interesting that people bring up the First Amendment to actually stop a conversation. And then secondly, to do something which I find very puzzling because I'm not in a law school to say, the way we decide the law today, right now, in 2018, is the best possible way. There is no other way, and anybody who questions it is actually un-American, not in touch with jurisprudence. When you just said there was very different regulation and approaches to speech in the 50s, there was no mention of the First Amendment in the courts until 1919. There is obviously going to be a difference, and but the current today interpretation is taken by people as the best and only possible one. That's probably true of three or four years ago. I'm not sure it's true of today. Interesting. Uh, one, of the, yes. <laughs> one of the things we've seen over the last year yeah. is that the phrase free speech is no longer the conversation stopper that it was as recently as three or four years ago. So what did it do three years ago when someone invoked free speech? Everybody knew what that meant, right? It's tough. Those are the breaks. This is the price we pay for our liberties. Everybody can speak even hateful speech. And then things changed. I mean, partly things changed by the reinvigoration of extremist supremacist groups back in 1969 when the Klan marched in or had their demonstration or their speech in Hamilton County, Ohio, back in 1978 when the Nazis proposed to march in Skokie, it was widely understood that these were totally off the rails, fringe groups that people didn't have to worry about. Whether that understanding was correct is something else again. But the common view was that these were fringe groups roughly equivalent to flat earthers and we didn't have to worry about them. 
Now things are different. Why things are different, I will leave to the political sociologists, but now things are different. Views about race, views about religion, views about gender and the like that would have been thought of as unthinkable, almost unthinkable, a couple of decades ago are now more thinkable. And that's changed a fair amount. And one of the things that it's changed is the ability of free speech to be a showstopper or conversation stopper. In addition, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, there's now somewhat of a recognition that lots of other industrialized, developed liberal democracies do things differently. When the question is gay rights or the question is the death penalty, a lot of American liberals appropriately said, we ought to look to what's being done in other countries. Very few of those people were willing to look to what's done in other countries about free speech. And here the press might be complicit. The institutional press, long sympathetic with looking to the experience in other countries about issues of gay rights, issues of equality more broadly, issues of the death penalty and so on, was suspiciously silent when it came to the question of looking to other countries about freedom of speech, freedom of expression. I think in the last few years, more broadly, there's a willingness to look at the experience of other places, and maybe there's a little bit more of a willingness, once again, to treat freedom of speech as a topic and not just as a conversation stopper. It's somewhat complicated for me. That is, I don't represent anyone. I was a real lawyer once decades ago. I study free speech. I study the First Amendment. If I am going to be faithful to my profession as a scholar, I can't be a very strong advocate on one side of the subject I study, I have to be able to look at it with an open mind. And that's what I try to do about free speech. But I think what's been great about your work that actually you've done these normative analyses of why America approaches a certain way and leaving a kind of evaluation of that aside and saying that is not the topic right now, but to even do that work and say, how have we arrived here? Which includes the question, how has it changed in three years? and I think there's also a recognition that people use free speech when it suits them. So football players kneeling on the field, that is unpatriotic yeah. and must be prohibited, but a TV star spewing some racial epithets, that's her free speech, right? So you have suddenly people saying, there seems to be a contradiction. And I think what you've done in your work to say, it's not a contradiction that's inherently wrong and can be resolved in one way or the other. It is actually in the nature of the discussion that we should tease out what informs our principles and our behavior. The second thing, I think because your work goes beyond jurisprudence, it's also these the kind of philosophical, political underpinnings, a Supreme Court decision informs our behavior up to a point. We don't all walk around, I mean, we would think to be reciting, you know, Supreme Court precedent, but we actually <laughs> behave very differently in the world. So to invoke a case that's 50 years old, will guide us to a point in today because, as you said, there's a different awareness. I think also different people are participating in a conversation who weren't participating in the same way 50 years ago. So racist speech is really bad, but there's no chance or likelihood it will do anything to anybody really serious in America. There were probably groups in America thinking, really? Look at us. 
this has been happening to us for a long time. So I think th yeah. there's a kind of altogether solitary development. There's more participation by more people. I think that's right. But we ought to recognize that although we, we might want to question and examine what the current law is, public officials have a different responsibility. Yes. And at least one of the problems in Charlottesville and a few other places is that public officials have failed to draw the distinction between what the existing positive law is and what they wish the law were. And as a result, some number of official actions appropriately guided as a matter of politics and morality were patently unconstitutional. I think the public needs to talk more about these things, including officials, but officials shouldn't neglect their responsibility to follow the law as it now is, even when they disagree with it. I think that's a really great point to say they obviously can't break the law, do something unconstitutional. I also think what we've seen a lot is if they say this is the law, but for moral reasons or for other reasons, I actually strongly wish we could do something else and then actually do other things that are legal. Yes. To say, but we actually are really in favor of, so our values are, and universities have values. We are institutions that are governed by values. If we have a value that we want to call equality or something like that, we actually act on that all the time. Here we are constrained and must accept this other speech, but we want to demonstrate through our action and not just say, well, we have to do it because the law kind of ties our hands, we have to let them speak. So I think it kind of is a higher burden or expectation on moral leadership to say, we may tolerate this speech, but we do not condone it. And this line is a very complicated one to walk all the time, but to say condemnation should not be ever in the picture, but so tolerating means we're doing other things that actually counter that message, which is perfectly legally permissible. Yes, there is, there is no constitutional prohibition on government officials condemning the Nazis, condemning the Ku Klux Klan, and condemning others. I suppose there are some who would argue that public officials ought to be neutral about all ideas. That's not our history, and it shouldn't be. And that's very interesting that you're saying that the government could take strong positions while, like Jimmy Carter did at some point. And I think that's also what the period we're living in right now, where there's, there's a lot of uncertainty. Does this government actually condone these messages or does it just tolerate them? So I think that's where universities are caught up in a larger political debate in America right now. Is the government behind this? Are they against this? And from Carter until... President Trump, every president had always condemned that kind of bigotry, racism, and hatred, and Trump left it a little bit open for a moment, so I think people got very, are getting very confused about that. We also need to keep some awareness of, even outside the university, uh, of what I like to refer to as intellectual honesty. We can go back to John Stuart Mill here, put aside the question whether an open marketplace of ideas leads to accepting more truth or getting more knowledge. It probably doesn't. We know enough about human psychology to know that the notion that let all voices be heard and truth will emerge has no empirical basis. Nevertheless, 
it may be a good idea for people in general and not just university students to recognize that it is important in everything we do, in everything we think about, to at least be willing to confront the strongest arguments against our own position. Even if someone else is not making them, we have to be willing to construct them ourselves. Echo chambers are bad things. And if we are not willing to think about, not just listen to someone else speak about it, think about, I believe X, what is the strongest argument against X? If we're not willing to think about that, then we've given up some degree of intellectual integrity. And that may be Mill's strongest message, not that truth was going to emerge from the liberty of thought and discussion, but maybe that at least some liberty of thought and discussion will encourage people to challenge their own ideas. I worry more about people's unwillingness to challenge their own ideas now than I worry about most other things. Is there a space in political thought for ideas that really have been settled? The way the law of gravity has been settled, the flat earth is probably not what we live on. It is probably, you know, a round <laughs> sphere. So in some ways, people are saying those things are not, I don't need to engage with all those arguments because that's just, you know, obsolesced by now. And so, and the same thing in the political sphere that certain beliefs about beings that go counter to principles we uphold, which are equality or justice, you could live in a society without justice and you can live in a society without equality, totally, perfectly conceivable. But we've settled on something else. And is it important for, do you think, to have that revived again and again, or does it, I understand what you're saying, yeah. I'm just worried, does it touch sometimes on completely right. idiotic, outrageous yeah. ideas simply for the sake of provocation? I agree with you that there are things that are settled. One of the things that has enabled restrictions on Holocaust denial and Nazi speech and the like to be viable in Germany, in Austria, in France, in a number of other countries. These laws are enforced more or less in other places. The examples I pick are ones in which there's more enforcement than there is in some number of other even Western European countries. One of the things that enables there to be at least a little bit of a barrier in some of Western Europe is the experience from 1933 to 1945. When you've seen the barrier in place, it's easier to say, we can understand the difference between Nazis and others that we disagree with. We can understand the difference between Holocaust denial and climate change denial or whatever. It may be that we need that in the absence of having that kind of firsthand experience. The worry is a little bit of a, if we can't reconsider the things that are settled, then we've got to do something about the fact that most people think that the things that they believe in are settled beyond doubt, and that's a problem. Right. I'm going to push you a little bit on this last point, So I, yeah. because I've discussed it with a lot of people, and a lot of people have said to me, no, 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 America has its own experience. And I asked, actually, my teenage son, <clears> he said, the genocide of the Native Americans and slavery. And I said, where did you learn this? And he said, Poppy, if I did not mention those things in the American history, I would fail my history exam. 
I would be repressing and denying the catastrophes we've inflicted. So this is why I think it becomes interesting because there's an argument to say it is not so different that we don't have this experience what this can all lead to. We've lived through it as well. And it, it may be that it depends at least in part on whether lived through it is metaphorical or literally true. It may depend in part on whether there is a conceptual apparatus that would enable people to distinguish the horrific cases from the very bad but not quite as horrific. We don't see in the U.S. people defending explicit capital S slavery. And one consequence of that is that that may be settled. But once, once there is a tendency to say that the rejection of slavery was a rejection of a whole lot of other things, and then what's the content of the whole lot of other things becomes debatable. I think the reason that I use the Nazi example is that at least the Nazis with their uniforms, their jackboots, their swastikas, their this and this and this and this, enabled it to be somewhat possible for a society that you know better than I do to draw a conceptual line between the Nazis and others. You're absolutely right. And I think people say the experience of slavery in America, which was yeah. not refuted by reason, but by a war, it wasn't settled in the courts. They say, no, this is a kind of systematic racism that presupposes the innate inferiority of a special group, which is people of African descent. That is settled. That doesn't mean everybody who has says something that could look racist as prohibited, but saying people who come in to explicitly advance an ideology that black people are innately inferior doesn't have any space on our campus, not worth discussing. While we accept that they'll be marching around in the streets and marching around on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, which is our marketplace of ideas for better or maybe for worse. But so I think you're right, and I think what has to happen is that at least that argument has to be opened up rather than a kind of blanket saying, no, 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 it's all good for America if more people speak about these things. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And that's, I come back to what I said before. I wish everything that you had said a few minutes ago up to now were applied to free speech as well as other things. That is, we shouldn't think of American free speech doctrine from 1919 to 1980, roughly, as so totally settled that it can't be questioned, so totally settled that academics shouldn't be able to investigate it. These are appropriate topics for social discussion, academic inquiry. Once we take free speech off the agenda, we may run the risk that it will become, as Mill would describe other things, dead dogma. Not enlivened by practice and things. So, yeah. so uh, Professor Shaw, I really want to thank you. It's been incredibly informative. I'd love Thanks to go. I'd love to go on for a few hours, but maybe I'll bring you back at another time. And, I would love to do it. This and, is. I've learned as much. I've learned a lot from this oh, conversation. Well, that, that thank says you. a lot. Thank you so much. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very okay, much. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye.